Welcome to the latest edition of Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. Uh, Bubba, uh, you know, here we are, yet another installment of Rick and Bubba University, and today we delve into another life, another story. Uh, a lot of you know our guest. If you're a sports fan, you, you, you've seen her work. Uh, but you may not know her story. So that's uh, that's what Rick and Bubba University, the podcast, is all about. That's right, Rick. We watched her on local TV. We've seen her graduate to ESPN, SEC Networks. Please welcome Lauren Sisler. Lauren Sisler. What's up? Welcome <laughs> to Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. You probably were looking on your bucket list, and, uh, and you said uh, ESPN, check, SEC Network, check. Rick and Bubba University, the podcast today. Check. Big old check. <laughs> Done. Big Done. old check. Highlighted and everything. So let's start out by, you know, we're, we're going to delve into a lot of things uh, in, in your life today and some things that are coming up that people can participate in. And uh, But let's talk a little bit. So you're, you're Rutgers University on a gymnastics scholarship, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. How, how do you go from, I'm from Roanoke, Virginia. <laughs> I get a scholarship for gymnastics uh, which Bubba did too, strangely. Right. Small world. Small world. <laughs> Something else we have in common. Something else oh, yeah. you have in common. Oh, but, yeah. But you get the scholarship to Rutgers. So you're 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 moving away from the South. Uh-huh. But then you end up in Alabama. So how how did all this happen? First of all, I want to say thank you for considering Roanoke, Virginia to be the South. Well because that's always up for debate. It is. Especially it, in here in Alabama. Now yeah. when I went to Rutgers, oh I was from the South. Of course. <laughs> I was a Southern girl. Yeah. They uh they gave me a hard time. When I got there, they're like, Where are you from and why are you so slow at everything you do? Yeah. You walk slow, you talk slow. <laughs> then I joke with them, I say, Hey, check my driving record. Yeah. That might be contradictory of your slow profile. Yeah, well, a lot of people in the deep south, like where we're from, yeah. They would say Roanoke is where you make your decision. To go oh. north or south. Yeah, so what I'm saying, you had like a chance that. to go further south and you went uh-huh. north. But how, what, how did you go there, Rutgers, back to Alabama? And Lauren, yeah. you're kind of tall for a gym, right? <laughs> you're getting to the point here. I know I'm sitting down. So I'm actually five foot nine, which is pretty crazy. And. In the gymnast world, that's you're right, yeah, Bubba. You're, that's a giant. You're, you're like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar <laughs> yeah. in the gymnast world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, huge. So I volleyball, basketball. I'm like, no, I was a gymnast. So I kind of missed my mark. But yeah, being in Roanoke, Virginia. Believe it or not, I was actually um, went to high school, Giles High School, which is right outside of Blacksburg, Virginia. So I grew up in Roanoke, moved to Giles. Marty Smith, also with ESPN, uh, went to my same high school. So it's kind of interesting that both of us that ended is up strange, in yeah. the ESPN sports world from a yeah. very small school. I think we graduated with maybe 100 uh, kids in my graduating class. But, uh, you know, it's like being recruited um, to Rutgers never on my radar. I had no idea, like, Rutgers? Where is Rutgers? Like, right. what is a Rutger anyways, right? right? Um, and so going from Roanoke to Rutgers was certainly a culture shock, but a good one, one that I enjoyed. I loved just getting to explore the world. Um, I was definitely an outsider, but it was an awesome experience, and that was always my goal, my dreams, my aspirations to be a collegiate gymnast. And, of course, as you said, I'm a little bit tall for that, but – you know, it's one of those things you put in so much time, dedication, and effort. I just figured out how to make it work, you know, and, um, you know, was fortunate enough to have most of my school paid for. And now here I am in Alabama yeah. because in TV, as you guys know, in the media business, it's like being recruited for athletics. You, you know, you put together a resume tape. You little hope keeper somebody, reel. Yeah, a yeah. little keeper reel, a little sizzle reel, a little sizzler reel. Yeah. <laughs> little right. pun on words there. Um, yeah. And you hope somebody likes you. They say, yes, we want you. So that's how I ended up here in, in Birmingham, Alabama in 2011. And 
very fortunate for it because I got to admit, I came at a pretty darn good time. So let let me ask you this before we leave gymnastic world. What was your best event? So bars and floor were actually my best event. So when you're in club gymnastics, so that's obviously, you know, moving up the ranks and all around, right? Vault bars being floor. Well, I was terrible at the vault. I somehow figured out how to do it every time. Adrenaline got me going every time. But what's crazy is the bars actually have a legal height limit. And you can't, you can only go so high and right. so wide. And actually, when I got to college, so I was five seven going into college, graduated at five nine. Most women, you know, we we don't, you, you, you're done growing, right? Early. So that, that was like early, of. yeah, yeah. Mo, you know, it's kind of the opposite of, of men and their athletic, um, physique, you know. And so, like I, Barry I, Bonds, he just kept growing, <laughs> <laughs> just kept on keeping on. I know, I don't, I mean, I don't know what they put in the, the water there, I don't know what happened, right. but nevertheless, bars is funny because there's actually the height limit, and I could swing bars and actually hit the mat, so I had to learn how to like curl my big toe that so Ooh. that I wouldn't scrub the mat every time I would swing wow. bars. Wow. Um, so bars was my event, and then floor, which is pretty cool, little sidebar story when I was a um, junior and senior. My floor music was the NFL Fox Sports theme. So I actually did like the Heisman pose. Mm-hmm. I did touchdown, yeah. face mask, personal, personal <laughs> foul. So I had a lot of fun with it. So little did I know that I would end up one day. I know I'm not on Fox, but I never, ne- you know, being in the football right, world, right. I got to, you know, show off my Heisman pose um, and, you know, my love for football. So that th- th- do you miss doing gymnastics? Oh, yeah. And I mean, I, do you I ever go out? I mean, you know, like if you, if you, we're a golfer. You can still golf. If you play basketball, you can still go out and shoot basketball. I mean, it may not be to the same level. You have a pickup game. How do you – No I mean, such thing as a pickup game of y- gymnastics. Yeah, I y'all. know. I started to say. And and when you get you, – you know, gy- gym, gymnasts typically peak around like 13, 14, or 15, and then that thing called fear sets into your mind. You and start you're like, thinking oh, wait a about sec. what's happening. Yeah, yeah, like I could hurt myself. So when you get to college, you are like geriatric. <laughs> like you are on the end of the rope. I mean, unless you're Simone Biles, who probably will go forever and ever and ever. Right. Um, however, uh, I do miss it. Every once in a while, I'll go get in the go to the trampoline park, but it's one of the I strap up, put the ankle braces on. I'm yeah. all taped up because my body just. Uh, yeah, we've it, seen it them haul them that. out of there too. You got to be careful <laughs> over there, you know. And that would be me. And so I always try to do that outside of the season because right. I don't want to get in trouble being at the trampoline park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? that, that's like me when I the position I played in football. When I left football, there's nowhere for it. If you're a quarterback, you can always throw around to people. If you can catch or run, yeah. But if you play defensive line. Everything they ask you to do, if you keep doing it, they arrest you. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, mean you, you can't just go out you, in life and say, "Well, I can." Tackle you can go somebody. out and help a security yeah. guard somewhere. That's would, about you like it. Me, would you like me? Would you like me to hit that guy from behind? That I can is do that. such a good point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's nothing. You, you I can't, can that skill sets him. over. <laughs> that yeah. skill sets over. You'll be a bouncer. Well, yeah, hopefully, hopefully that anger has has exited, and you are. Uh, you you seem like you're very soft in your heart. I am kind and gentle. People say that about me all the time. Lauren, you may be on a misread there. I can't tell you how many times people tell me that. But you wanted to get into it. So when you went to college, you're, that, obviously your floor exercise, I mean, that's not – Is that, that what you that, majored that's not in? Just a, that's, that has to – you always wanted to do what you're doing? Nope. No. Which is kinda, You didn't go to school for that? So it's it's crazy. I actually grew up wanting to be a sports doctor or a uh, a trainer, you know, mm-hmm. or an athletic trainer right. for a sports team. That was always my goal and my dream because for me, you know, gymnastics, the injuries always piled up. I mean, right, you couldn't yeah. get through a season without a major injury. And so to me, it was like it would be so cool to be able to, you know, help out athletes to get back out, you know, in their respective sports um, to compete again. And so 
that was always my goal and aspiration. And that's what I was going to school for pre-med, right? So like, oh, like this is cool. But childhood dreams, I don't know about y'all, but childhood dreams, you know, you envision something. It, it, it changes drastically as you get older and get more mature. Yeah. And, you know, I, I kind of came to the conclusion that I w- really wasn't cut out for it. And as I know we get into my story, I just sort of took a step back and said, like, this isn't for me. I, I, I'm not enjoying this. I'm not passionate about it. Um, and I just don't know that I have, you know, the drive to be able to, I mean, go the distance, 8, 12 years worth of school, right. um, depending on what direction you go. But just realized um, that it wasn't for me. But the sports part was the big key component because I grew up around sports my whole life. My brother was a three-sport athlete. You know, my dad was always on the sidelines coaching, volunteer coaching, college football on Saturdays. We were always at the local uh, racetrack. Mm-hmm. My brother was on a pit crew there. Love me some NASCAR, baby. Let's go. <laughs> First on race day. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, so I was sad when Carl Edwards yeah. – uh, retired because of the backflip. Like, yeah. bring on the backflip. Did, didn't we have him do that in here one time? I don't know if we <laughs> did the flip. We did talk about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Every time I'm like, please don't hurt yourself. Please don't hurt yourself. Um, you know, but I was around sports my whole life. So sports was always there. I just started to realize that I need to go in a different direction. I think a lot of it is my ability to connect with people. I love relationships. I love people. I love just being out there. And, you know, now I have an opportunity to be a storyteller which is something I enjoy uh, doing. And, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunities. And, of course, landing here in Birmingham in 2011, as I said, in perfect timing when the national championships come raining in. Oh, yeah. You know? They, they're still raining. Bring me the confetti. <laughs> I mean, they're still raining in. So, and then how did, how did you go from CBS 42 in, in Birmingham? Uh, how did you – what was the next step toward ESPN? Yeah, so um, I was there for, I guess, I uh, think it was five and a half years that I was at 42, and and we talk about my good friend Jim Dunaway. Give him a little shout-out. Yeah. Shout-out to Jimmy. Dunaway. We love you, Dunaway. We do. Um, he, was my, he was my mentor and really kind of uh, reined me in when I got here and sort of, you know, he, he he brought me up from the little bird that I was and helped <laughs> to set me free and fly away. Um, do you know he used to do our sports in his underwear? Yep, sports in, in his shorts from home. <laughs> That's what we called it because it was too early to be dressed. <laughs> I love that. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, but, yeah, so then I, I moved on to AL.com. Uh, so after I left CBS 42, you know, there's such a, uh, you know, things have changed these days, the digital world. What oh, are we yeah. doing right now? You know, right. we're, we're on exactly. the digital platform. And, Absolutely. Um, you know, had this great opportunity to, to to pursue that and to kind of have that creative thinking. And probably one of my most favorite projects I did was the Charles Barkley, Nick Saban interview that I helped produce. So the two of them did their thing and, uh, you know, polar opposites. But it was fun <laughs> to watch them come together. And then now Barkley was... has a process, but it's much different. <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> well, my favorite part of that, too, is, you know, Barkley, uh, his golf swing is. Oh, We've seen it. Yeah, we've we've played. Bubba in, played with him. Yeah, in, in, in celebrity he's been in my group several it's times. It's ugly. Uh, yeah, it's I'm actually not a good improved. His quarantine it, it, swing has improved from what I saw in that last tournament okay. that he played in. Okay. But he did tell Nick Saban. He said, "If you can fix my golf swing, I will erect a statue of you outside of my home in Scottsdale, Arizona." <laughs> so I'm like waiting for the waiting for that because I could I could only imagine seeing a big old statue of Nick Saban, or else he could just go to Bryant Denny Stadium and yeah. pull that one out of there. Already right? there. Um, so you're at al.com. Al.com, right. and then uh, you know, really just kind of uh, you know, uh, the. Communication was open, obviously, with SEC Network and ESPN. And, and, you know, it's crazy because you really don't get experience being a sideline reporter until you actually go out there and do it. Yeah, and so that's true. the opportunity to 
essentially go out there and audition, you know, um, talk to some folks there. And they said, hey, we're going to get you to do a, you know, a game at Auburn. It was, you know, cupcake week. It was a, you know, a, one, one of those deals and uh, yeah. went out there and, you know, I guess I did a good enough job and then continue to grow on that and build. And then I had the opportunity to do some NCAA gymnastics as well for SEC Network and then uh, was on SEC Nation for two years with uh, Paul Feinbaum, Tim Tebow, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Laura Rutledge, and, and Marcus Spears and had a great time with that. And then uh, last year got moved over to doing games full-time with them um, on the sidelines. So it's been a lot of fun. I mean, it's fun to travel around. I love being in the SEC, but also getting to expand outside right. of that footprint and uh, you know, be a part of something, um, you know, uh, seeing different schools, different cultures, different programs. It's, it's really cool. So ESPN's uh, Lauren Sisler is our guest. We'll come back. We'll delve into some other parts of her life and tell you about some projects that are coming up that you can actually be part of when the Rick and Bubba University, the podcast continues. So Bubba, keeps.com, uh, look, we've looked around the room. Speedy, it's too late. There's, there's nothing we can do there, okay? Uh, I mean, he's uh, it, it's a foregone conclusion. There's no bringing Speedy's hair back. But you look over at, like, Greg, and you look over at some some others. That, and, and yeah, sadly, I'm headed that well, way, I, I don't know, but but uh, it, I'm looking. I mean, it's uh, there's still – I mean, the forest has got some trails on it, <laughs> but it's still there. Uh, but but you can go one or two ways. You know, we have we, we let's, let's take these two men. Let's say their names are Kyle and Josh. We'll pull that out of thin air. They're both losing their hair. No no shock. You know, the male pattern baldness was part of their genetic uh, makeup in their family. But the way they dealt with their hair could not have been more different because Kyle kept putting off getting a hair loss treatment, and you know what happened there, losing more hair by the day. Now, Josh, on the other hand, this is who you want to be, uh, went to Keeps to learn how to keep his hair. Keeps offers the generic version of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products. Now, this is the real deal. Uh, so the generic version saved Josh a fortune, and all it took was a quick online, and that's key, consultation. He answered a few questions, snapped some pics of his hair. Then a doctor evaluated everything and recommended the right FDA-approved hair loss treatment. For Josh, it was shipped discreetly to his door. Keeps lets you save your hair without leaving the couch. And uh, to get you started, uh, we have pulled off here at the Rick and Bubba Show at Rick and Bubba University, the podcast, a half off your first order. That's right, half off. Go to keeps.com slash rickbubba. That's keeps.com slash rickbubba, keeps.com slash rickbubba. Lauren Sisler is our guest on Rick and Bubba University, the podcast, as we continue. So um, jumping into a little more of your personal life, so 2003, you're, you're at Rutgers, uh, you're on the gymnastic scholarship, uh, and something took place traumatic uh, in your life, um, and, um, and you have uh, been uh, gracious enough to talk about this because you want to make a difference in other people's life, and this is a problem. It's in our family. We've dealt with it. Many have dealt with it involving prescription drugs and, uh, and addiction. So, so tell us uh, this, this part of your story. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I was a freshman at Rutgers. Uh, this was my second semester, and, you know, I always had a really close relationship with both my parents. Even when I went off to school, you know, I know a lot of parents always say, oh, you know, I never hear from my kids, mm-hmm. but I always had conversations with my parents, always picked up the phone, always felt very close with them, even if I was eight hours away. And they were always involved with my athletics, obviously, my academics, and really just kind of you know, piecing together that roadmap for success for my brother and I, giving us the resources we needed to get to where we were going. And I'm um, just always there and very supportive. So I picked up the phone like I always did. Um, had a conversation with my mom on the phone that night, my father as well, and just talked about gymnastics and life and school and, you know, hung up the phone, 
said, I love you. We love you, Lauren. And that was it. And nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Everything seemed okay. Uh, And I remember setting my alarm clock, saying my prayers before I went to bed and fell asleep and woke up to a phone call just after three o'clock. And I looked at the caller ID on my cell phone and it said home. And of course, right then I knew something was wrong. It's the middle of the night. Why is my, why, why are mom and dad calling me right You're now? Right, exactly. And never, answer, a, never a good call that time of day. Either. Never a good call. And so I, I, I pick up the phone with hesitation and I said hello. And, and my dad was on the other end and he said, Lauren, I need to talk to your brother. And I said, Dad, what's wrong? And he said, I can't find your brother's number. I just need to talk to him. And finally he said, Lauren, your mom died. Mm. And I was like, what? Like, I just talked to mom. Right. It's three o'clock in the morning. She, she, surely she's not out driving the car. What happened? And he said, Lauren, I can't explain it now. I just need you to get on the next plane you can, and I'll be at the airport to pick you up. And so, you know, I frantically pack my bags. Um, you know, I, I get an airline ticket. I get a ride to the, the airport in Philadelphia, and, um, you know, I get on that plane. And all I wanted to do in that moment was run and jump in my dad's arms. All I wanted to do was to be consoled by him and for him to tell me everything was going to be okay, you know? Um, I was daddy's little girl and I, and I knew that everything was going to be okay. I just needed to see my dad. And so when that plane touched down, you know, I get to the Roanoke airport, I go blazing through the terminal, I run outside. And at this point I hadn't communicated with them and all they had at the time was a landline. So no cell phone communication. And so, you know, my dad's going to be there. He he promised me he was going to be there to pick me up. I knew he would be there. And instead it was my uncle and my cousin who showed up that day and uh, had to deliver the bad news that my dad, too, had passed away. Mm. And so, I, so this happens within hours of each Yeah, other. I mean, I know now you probably know the actual timeline, but you go, you're, the whole time you're flying, you think it's a, he's waiting on you at the airport when you get there. Yep, and, uh, that, and that is exactly my vision, my thought, and just to, to go from losing one parent and then within, I think, based on, as you mentioned, um, you know, the investigation and the, and the reports, it was about a five-hour period from when she had passed and when my father had passed. And so, as you can imagine, on that day, uh, you know, March 24th of 2003, my world was turned upside down. And, you know, I think I was just left in so much shock because even in that moment, I, I really had no idea what happened to both of my parents. So I can't imagine jumping on a plane, getting that news and not knowing what happened, you know, trying to run scenarios in your mind because your dad gave you no idea, right? No idea. So you're trying to figure out what happened to your mom. And now your dad has also passed. What happened to my parents? So what was the process of finding out? Yeah. And and that's exactly what went through my mind. What happened? What happened? And so as you go through those stages of the shock, then it's like, okay, I need to know. I need to know what happened. And so obviously the investigation is done. The toxicology reports, they knew pretty early on what had happened once they got there to my, my, my parents' house when my dad had initially called. So my parents were going to a pain management doctor in Roanoke. Uh, my mom had degenerative disc disease, multiple surgeries over the course of several years. My father, chronic pain. He was also uh, in the military, so he, you know, suffered from depression, some PTSD from his service in the military. And, you know, so they were going to this pain management doctor to get help with their chronic pain. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of depression and anxiety involved in that as well. But over that course of time, they started to abuse their prescription drugs. But, you know, I'm 15, 16, 17 years no old. Idea. No idea. Um, My parents always did such a good job of kind of sweeping it under the rug. I knew they were in pain. 
I knew that they were hurting, but they woke up every day with a smile on their face. So, you know, they were functioning. They were getting through the day. My dad was working full time. My mom was on disability, but she was still taking me to gymnastics practice, always very involved. You know, we would get up, we'd go do stuff. Um, You know, it just didn't make sense. And so what's so crazy about it, 90 days went by before we got the call from the coroner's office to come pick up the toxicology and autopsy reports. And my auntie Linda, I call her, my mom's sister, um, who really, her and my uncle really took me under their wing um, when all of this had happened. And she got in the car. I would not go into the coroner's office. And she got in the car and she handed me the manila envelope and said, do you want to read it? And I said no. And I threw it in the floorboard. I refused to look at what was on that um, piece of paper and that packet of papers because I think I was afraid to know the truth because I think there was that part of me that kind of knew that something had happened as as it pertains to overdose. Mm -hmm. But to me, if I could ignore the truth, if I I could ignore how they died, then I could go along with my sugar-coated story that everyone, you know, people want to know well, what happened. Oh, my my mom died of respiratory failure. Well, that sounds a lot better than overdose, right? It mm-hmm. does, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, my dad died of a heart a heart attack. Well, yeah, his heart stopped because he overdosed. Mm-hmm. He had respiratory failure. So in my mind, I was able to create this story that became so true in my heart and my mind because I told it over and over and over again that I was able to recreate the narrative that I felt had happened. Um, so if I didn't look at those toxicology reports, then it wasn't true. I didn't have to acknowledge it and I didn't have to tell people the truth. And that was what I was protecting myself and my family from. Yeah. You, you threw it in the floor because you said, I don't want that as part of the narrative. Correct. As long as it's not here and I don't look at it, then, then I don't have to include if it. If I don't know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right. It is easier to talk about respiratory failure and heart attack as a, as opposed to that. And, uh, and we come back, we'll talk more because I want to know, and I think a lot of people want to know, how did you get to the point where you would talk about it? How did you get to the point where you would just say it straight out, this is what happened? And, Lauren, did, did you have hints along the way? Did you ever think, hey, something doesn't look right with that? Yeah, you look back. I mean, the hindsight 2020 is, is so clear and apparent in, in this situation. There were red flags, but the problem was I wasn't educated enough on addiction and what it looked like mm-hmm. and and – and having that understanding, you know, between my parents doing a great job of sweeping it under the rug and also not being educated and being so focused, so laser focused on my schoolwork and my gymnastics and my mm-hmm. career, I, 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 I really, when I look back, I just say, wow, like, how did I not know? My aunt and uncle, how did we not know? I mean, that was my mom's best friend, her sister. And so many people ask that same question, how did we not know? And that's why, you know, I'm, I'm here today and, and where I'm at today. And I know we'll get into that, why it's so important to yeah. be transparent. And we'll do that when we come back on Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. All right, so Valentine's Day is quickly approaching. Guys, please, whatever you're doing, uh, do, not, do, not, do not fast forward through this. Listen up because we're going we're gonna to take care of it. What's the gift that's really going to say wow? And, and 1-800-Flowers.com. As a helpful hint, I know people try to hit you with all this all the time that somehow traditions change. Women don't want, they still want roses. They, right? They still want roses. Oh, yeah. I mean, ro- <laughs> go, go ahead and get the roses. And, and Valentine's is the biggest 
and, and it also offers the brightest roses on the market. And if you're looking for a wow factor rose, you're going to only find that at 1-800-Flowers. They just do a job that is, that is the standard. They have an amazing offer for all of you that are checking out Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. Listen to this. The 18-stem Enchanted Rose Medley is only $39.99. Now, if you want to go big and double it, still going to save you some money, and I would suggest you do. 36-stem Enchanted Roses would just be an additional $20. That's right, 18-stem Enchanted Rose Medley, $39.99, or you can double the roses for $20 more. We love it. Our wives uh, received flowers this week, and I, I came home, and there they were. I will admit that 1-800-Flowers did this. Uh, I had to go through an uncomfortable moment where I acted like I knew about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sending these roses. Yes. It says here 1-800-Flowers sent me roses. Did you make sure they did that? Mm-hmm. Well, of course. Well, of, well, they did it. Yeah, because you do have to be careful how you word it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so, but uh, she loves them. And uh, your wife or special someone will too. Order the 18 stem Enchanted Rose Medley for $39.99 or double for $20 more at 1-800-Flowers.com. All you do is just click the radio icon and then put in the code Rick Bubba. Rick Bubba, put our names together there. 1-800-Flowers.com, Rick Bubba. Now, this offer is going to expire uh, by Wednesday of uh, next week. Lauren Sisler is our guest today from ESPN on Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. Uh, we just heard, uh, I know it's difficult, no matter how many times you tell it, it's difficult, uh, that you as a freshman uh, in 2003 at Rutgers uh, get the phone call from your dad that your mother has passed away. You get on the plane. By the time you land, he has passed away. Uh, the investigation is done on their deaths. Uh, they they come to the conclusion that both your parents were struggling with prescription drug related to pain and anxiety and, and all these things, uh, addiction that eventually and sadly took their lives. And uh, when we were talking uh, last, you were talking about you created a narrative where that really didn't happen because you didn't want to have that in the story of your parents. And then Bubba asked the question, you were talking about it, were there things now looking back that you saw because you were shocked, but then you start going back through your life and you said you did see some things. But also, what was it? What was the process when you got to the point that you told the true story? What, what was this process like? Well, you know, and, I, and I'll start here. Um, you know, when my parents passed away, uh, within two weeks of them passing away, I had to go into the funeral home. Not only do I have to p- pick out a casket and an urn for one parent, two parents, mm. and I'm trying to process this all emotionally and figuring out how am I going to live my life without my two best friends? How am I going to continue on? I was still a kid. I was right. still 18. I was 18 yeah. years old. Didn't even know how to write a check. My parents always said, focus on gymnastics, focus on schoolwork. We'll take care of the rest. So processing all this. And then, of course, just the the, the sadness and, the, and the, the grief that I was feeling. I really, you know, I just, I didn't know how I was going to move forward with it. And my aunt and uncle really said, Lauren, you've got to go back to school. You have a commitment to yourself, your university, your teammates. You have to go back to Rutgers. And honestly, I think that was the best decision. So two weeks after, you know, laying both of my parents to rest, I went back to school, fulfilled my commitment on scholarship with gymnastics and continued my studies, continued my schoolwork. But it was such a struggle. And I think part of that was because I enclosed myself in this bubble because Rutgers, I I was away from everything that reminded me of my parents. You know, I, I, this was my new life. This was my new world. And so it was easy for me to run from reality. And this is so crazy when I think about this. I ran from reality for seven years. Mm. So I didn't acknowledge the truth of what happened to my parents for seven years. And so 
as I said, I shared this narrative. People would ask me, and I just, I just felt in my heart and my mind, it was so much easier to share the story that I was sharing with people and for people to, to see how my parents died in that manner because ultimately I was trying to preserve their legacy. Mm -hmm. I was trying to protect myself, my family, and preserve their legacy because I didn't want them to be judged by how they died. Right. And so I get to that seven-year mark, and as I mentioned before, my Auntie Linda really a big part of helping me to sort of navigate this new life. And I had built up these brick walls to try and protect myself and my family, and she really helped me to break those walls down piece by piece. And I'm telling you, it was a struggle. She would try to bring something up and mention something, and I would just resist, resist, resist. And finally, I started getting more comfortable with the truth. And more and more comfortable to the point of, okay, well, if this is really what happened, I need to start being truthful with other people and sharing it. So after that seven-year mark, that's when I really started to be okay with, you know, I'll share it with my friend. I'll share it with my colleague. And then at the 10-year mark is when I actually decided I need to open up those toxicology reports. I need to see it on paper. I need to understand what happened to them today. Ten years later. Ten years later that I actually acknowledged what had happened to them on paper and had a better understanding of the events that happened that night when both of my parents overdosed on fentanyl. So, uh, you know, just coming to that, to that place in my life um, and being able to acknowledge it and being able to lift that shame off of me was so tremendous because I, I'm telling you, the truth will set you free. And I, for so many years, was just living this 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 false sense of, um, you know, uh, life because I I felt like that was the better way to go. That I wouldn't be judged by it. My brother wouldn't be judged by it. My family wouldn't be judged by it. For so long, I was so fearful that I might not be selected for gymnastics awards if people knew my parents died from right. overdose. Right. right. If I I'm applying for TV jobs, well, if people know that my parents died of overdoses, they might think, well, she might not be qualified or, you know, she might fall into those same addictive behaviors. Right. And that was what went through my mind over and over and over again. And so I just felt like I took the easy road to, to just push it aside and try to stay on a different path for myself. Well, it's, it is a, as you know, now I'm not telling you anything. And like I say, I've seen it in so many lives, even in lives of people that I, know personally and have been connected to our family, even within our family, there's something about this prescription drug addiction. They're all bad. Don't misunderstand me. But it just seems to be it's difficult to to, to break it. it. It just seems it takes hold of their lives, and they realize that it brings me comfort, and without it I'm back to pain, even though I know that I'm I'm overdoing it because I need it more and more and more. These things are not designed as a lifestyle. But – then they're thinking, well, if you take it back away from me and I'm back to the pain and, and they cling to it and the addiction seems to be so strong, what have you learned uh, that you could share with other people about maybe some things that they need to do? And I know we'll get into a, an event coming up they can participate in too. Yeah, you know, I think that is the most difficult part because it's hard for me to put my shoe, my, myself in my parents' shoes right. and people that are experiencing that type of pain. I've right. experienced pain, obviously, through gymnastics injuries, have taken medications not really knowing mm-hmm. what they do other than, oh, like, that's a muscle relaxer. Oh, that's helping my back or that's helping my, you know, my broken ankle or whatever it may be. Um, 
you know, but to be able to overcome that, to be able to find sort of that balance of, OK, how do I get up in the morning? How do I function? And that and that is the, the, the place that we're in. And I'll, and I'll tell you, when my parents first started on their pain management, it was when pain management was very new. Mm-hmm. And so things have come a long way. But education is so key. And it's not just education and prevention. So that's a, I mean, that's a key component, getting ahead of this, because, I, you know, I've heard a multitude of stories of of athletes, you know, in, in my in my time and in my conversation that, you know, go out there and blow an ACL and they've got to take, you know, you know, they get shots every day and they've got to take whatever opiate drug it is to help them get back out on the field. But 20 years later, they have regrets like I can't function. You know, I'm so reliant on these medications that this is my way of life now. And so the education and prevention piece is so key, but also education for us when we go to the doctor, when we have an ailment, an issue that just because a doctor is prescribing it does not mean it's okay and does not mean it's going to work for me the same way. You know, for me, prescription drugs make me sick. Like, I I, I have a physical sickness when I take, um, you know, heavy narcotics, and um, I'm thankful for that. But some people have a totally different yeah. feeling. Yeah. And so, sort of knowing that, educating yourself, and being your own advocate. And I think that's where people sometimes, you know, you, you go to the doctor, you go to get help, but... Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you have to be your own, um, you know, your own, I guess, educator. You have to be able to go get the information, speak out, know as much as you can. You you got to make your own call. And I think, too, the fact you're getting it from a doctor, it kind of puts your guard down. You know, I mean, it's not like you're sneaking out. You don't have that. Hey, You're I'm not going a, to the corner drug dealer right. thing. It, doctor told me to take it. It's got to be fine. It's helping me. Yep. You know, and you, you can see how you can just fall into that. There's nothing seedy about it. Yeah. It's, it's you, not you let like, your guard down. There's people yeah. under the bridge, and here's where yeah. all the prescription drug people are, and you got to come down here to I get I mean, some. you go into the pharmacist that's taking yeah. care of your whole life and your kids and, and get it just like anything else. And, but, that, and that's exactly where we're at, too, is breaking down that stigma. Because in my mind, once I started to accept the fact that my parents died of prescription prescription drug overdoses I still classified prescription drug overdoses as like up here well that's right. kind of a high class drug like that's prescribed that's right. different but ultimately chances are the person as you mentioned living under the bridge the people that have lost everything due to, to their drug addiction it started somewhere no, you're right it started somewhere and I think that's where we really have to be able to educate ourselves empower ourselves and make the right choices and know that not everything just because it's prescribed or, or said to you by a medical professional is the right fit for you. And there's got to be other alternatives out there for people to get the treatment and the help that they need to help them to cope with their pain and um, issues and ailments that they might have. Uh, there's an opportunity for you to get a, to actually be part of what's going on. We're going to talk about something called Beyond the Sidelines when we come back. And it's something that, uh, that everybody can participate in. Also, uh, a short documentary that you also were part of. I know it was cool. We'll talk about that. With Lauren Sisler, when Rick and Bubba University, the podcast continues. All right, so Bubba, you and I were just talking about this on the big show today, and this is all about what are my alternatives if I don't want to support some of these companies that politically are part of the cancel culture, or I just and you're thinking, well, where else can I go? Well, when it comes uh, to you know your mobile service, I want to introduce you today to Patriot Mobile. Now they just expanded their coverage dramatically. Uh, which will make it easier for even more Americans to dump the big name carriers that are charging you way too much. And then, of course, you're looking, and they take this money you're giving them, and then they donate it, donate it to, to, to political candidates and 
causes causes that you that you don't like. And you say, well, what choice do I have? Well, you now do. You you have a choice. Patriot Mobile. They never send a penny uh, to to anything uh, you know politically that is that that is to the left. Uh, they won't silence you. Uh, and how about this, Bubba? Did you know this? I didn't know this till we started talking about them partnering with us. They're America's only Christian conservative wireless provider. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. Rick. I didn't that's, that's news to me. Uh, so you can switch with confidence because they use the same network as the larger providers, but they charge less. Switching is easy. You can keep the phone number you have now. That's the first thing I thought of. Uh, bring your own phone. Uh, you can uh, bring your own phone to the table. You can buy a new one if you want. You have control. Build your own bundle with the multi-line discounts and, and save even more. So here's what you need to do now. Go to patriotmobile.com slash rickbubba and, and, and ask about this switch. Or maybe you can call their U.S.-based customer service team. That's 972, and then spell out the word patriot, 972-PATRIOT. Veterans and first responders will save even more. So this month, get free Premier Activation, where they set up the phone for you. I'll need that. And a special <laughs> gift with the offer code RICKBUBBA. PatriotMobile.com slash RickBubba, PatriotMobile.com slash Bubba, or call them 972-PATRIOT. You actually have a choice when it comes to your wireless service. All right, so back with Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. Lauren Sisler of ESPN is with us. You've told the story uh, about uh, the loss of your both your parents within hours of each other uh, to prescription drug abuse. And uh, I know with any of us that have been through trauma, there's nothing that brings more healing, I've discovered, than actually using it to help someone else. Now I can take what I've been through, and it really puts salve on the pain when I can take what I've learned and now go into action and help somebody else. So let's talk about February the 1st, 7 o'clock Central Time, Beyond the Sidelines. What What, what is this? Well, as you as – you see the reference beyond the sidelines, you know, mm-hmm. uh, somewhat of a sports reference there. Our goal and mission in that is to get people off the sidelines and in the game, in our mission to bring awareness to addiction, to bring awareness to substance abuse. Right now, we are at record numbers with overdose mm. deaths, especially in the midst of this pandemic. Isolation has been a catalyst for this addiction, for people that are struggling with alcohol and drug abuse. And so more than ever, we need people to step up, step out, and break this stigma. So we're trying to shatter the stigma of addiction, have the conversation, talk about the things that you mentioned. You know, what do you look for? Signs and symptoms. How do you become educated? Where do you go to get help? And how do you get in front of this and prevent it, but also providing hope and recovery? And so that is the goal of this. Jim Dunaway will be moderating it. Um, Dr. Stephen Taylor, who is the medical director of the NBA's in, uh, Player Assistance and Anti-Drug Program, will also be joining us. He's here uh, from, from Alabama as well, travels around, is very involved there. And then, as you mentioned, um, will be a 20-minute uh, short documentary that really outlines my story, tells my story kind of from start to finish. Very much the footnotes version of it, of course, um, but just the journey of getting me to where I am today and, uh, you know, really just to start that conversation and then we want that call to action. We want people to get involved because this is everyone's problem. This is something that impacts everybody. Everybody is a, a, affected by addiction. And so we want to get in front of this thing and really help people. And, you know, I got to tell you, as a sports reporter, it's so amazing because, you know, I get into sports because I'm passionate about it. I love it. And, you know, it's great. You get to be on the sidelines. You get to cover college football. As I mentioned, hello, the confetti's falling. This is amazing. Like, I get paid to cover sports, right? Yeah. But, oh, by the way, what I realized in that journey and that process is, you know, as that confetti is falling down 
It's like these are the stories of people. These are the stories of the coaches, the athletes, the fans, the community that I get to tell. People come to me and say, hey, I want, I want, to, I want to share this story. Help me share my story. Yeah. And yet I've been silenced in my own story. Yeah. I would not share my own story. And so I truly believe that the good Lord above has given me a purpose. He has shown me this pathway, opened my eyes to this. I needed that seven years of healing. I needed that time to heal to be able to get to where I am. And I feel like I can be a vessel and a voice of hope for people that are struggling every single day. And that's just my hope, my mission, and my goal. And, um, you know, really, I hope to bring awareness to that. And my end goal, too, is to also build a scholarship fund uh, to help young students who would like to further their education. Because I think oftentimes what happens is um, we get trapped in this thought process of becoming a product of our circumstances. So kids are at home and have a parent or a caretaker that is incarcerated because of drugs. That's a drug addict. I want to show kids that they are worthy, that they are deserving, that they are qualified to further their education, to go and have a successful career, no matter what it is that they're going through at home, that they are absolutely 100 percent um, uh, worth every bit of it. And to be able to show them that pathway and to help to unlock some of that shame that they may be feeling. So that is my end goal through all of this as well. So I just want to bring light to it and uh, just help people and do everything that I can, even if it's one person. Yeah, if it's one, it's worth it. So here's how you you, get, you want to be involved with this. It's February the 1st. It'll be 7 o'clock Central Time, 8 o'clock Eastern. So to register for it, and it's free, there's no cost for this, just go to laurensisler.com slash sidelines. laurensisler, S-I-S-L-E-R, laurensisler.com slash sidelines, and then you'll be ready to go. Uh, all you got to do is register at 7 o'clock Central Time, and you'll see beyond the sidelines and hopefully – uh, there'll be something that's said because, you know, you know it. You saw the bad side of it. I, I've, I've got some people that I know got a letter from one of them that's in rehab right now. And, of course, in the in the letter. And, I, and, I, and I'm not, I'm, I get upset with myself about this because I hear this person saying, this time I won't go back. I'm, I've learned it. I, I'm, ba- I'm, I'm apologizing, which is great. I apologize for all the things I caused and da-da-da-da-da. That's wonderful. I'm so glad about that. And it's a Christian base rehab facility but in the back of my mind I keep hearing this addiction seems to be almost impossible to defeat will this person fall back into it again so I think even though some rehab works and praise the Lord for that but I think what you're doing is so important because it's almost the the real place we need to make the most impact is that it never happens Mm -hmm. you never start down that road because once that addiction gets a hold of you it's not hopeless Praise the Lord for that. But it's tough. But 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 to know what you're getting into so that when you go, hey, wait a minute, I heard about this. I need to ask some questions right here. I need to be careful about this. Oh, I need I need to double check what I was told about this because the best way to prevent it is that you never become addicted to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, the, you know, one thing that I really want to point out and, and, you know, saying this to anybody that's sitting there watching and, as you mentioned, the hope component, mm-hmm. and there is hope in recovery, obviously. Yes, but sure. You know, I go back to an incident that happened where my dad overdosed um, just before Thanksgiving um, when I was home from Rutgers visiting. And, of course, I didn't know it was an overdose. I thought that uh, we we were told it was a bad reaction to medication. And I later found out that in the hospital that day, and I'm going to get a little emotional, um, that he told my mother that maybe he would be better off Mm. not here and that she would be better off without him. And I think at that point, that's an indicator to me now looking back that he was he was drowning in his addiction. Yeah. 
And I never want anybody to feel that they're not worthy to be Amen. here. That's exactly right. And that's a lie that comes from the adversary. We have, yep. a, we all here have a biblical worldview, and you may not share that with us, but no matter if you understand that or not, that is a lie. Yep. That is a lie that's being told to you that everybody's better off without you, that nothing could be further from the truth. And you know what's so sad, and, and, and I've seen this in, in people who, who, who were convinced of that lie, they try so hard not to make a mess, and all they do is make a mess. Yep. You know, it, it's going to be worse mm-hmm. for you to go away, so don't. Yep. You know, absolutely. Every, every, everybody, no, everybody would rather you be here, even if we got to help you through some stuff. Yep. You are so worth it. And that's just what I want to remind people of, you know, you are so worth it and you, you can get there. And, and I'm telling you, you just have to stay the course. And, you know, again, like you said, there's so many key components, the prevention aspect, the hope and recovery, and, you know, just getting in front of this thing and being part of it. I'm just so thankful that I have found my purpose, you know, and I feel like my God-given purpose. He has led me to this place in my life to be able to be a voice for other people that feel like they've been silenced. Well, you've definitely done that and uh, and know that you are making your parents very proud. Hey, Lauren Sisler, thanks for being with us. Thank uh, you. And thanks Thank to all you. of you for spending time with us on this edition of Rick and Bubba University, the podcast.